Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Luke chapter 16. Hey, so I, I got, I'm, I'm going to talk about the Super Bowl twice today, and then I'll, I'll forget it. I'll move on to baseball after that. But let me talk about Super Bowl for just a moment because I'm always fascinated by how much Super Bowl commercials cost, right? And so we did a little dive uh, looking at, a little deep dive on looking at how much people pay for Super Bowl commercials. If you go back all the way to 1967, it was $37,500 for a 30-second Super Bowl commercial. These are a big deal, right? People who don't even care about football will watch the Super Bowl just to see the commercials. And so first spot, $37,500. Well, quickly, it moved up. 1971, it was over 72000 1975 was the first time it was over $100,000. For a 30-second spot is $107,000. By 1980, it had climbed up to almost a quarter of a million dollars a slot. And by 1985, it climbed up to a half a million dollars for a 30-second television commercial. One commercial, half a million dollars. Well, by 1990, 700000 And then by 1995, the first time it went over a million dollars for a 30-second spot. $1.15 million for 30 seconds. Then in 2000... It went over $2 million for a 30-second spot and was $2.1 million. Then you go forward 15 years, and by 2015, a 30-second spot was $4.25, million for a 30-second spot during a Super Bowl, which, by the way, is the most watched worldwide event of the year. Still a lot of money. And by 2021, CBS decided to give everybody a break in 2021 because we're in a pandemic and so they didn't raise the prices they kept them the same as 2020 and by 2021 you could easily get a Super Bowl commercial for a mere 5.6 million dollars 5.6 do they work do they work that's a big question so we're going to do a little survey today see if they work because uh, they rank the Super Bowl commercials of all time from from you know best to worst and Got a couple sites uh, that show me that. And so let me show you. Let's see if you recognize this commercial. Number seven Super Bowl commercial of all time. And it has sound with it too. You may, I don't know how to say, you may not know it's Volkswagen, but you knew it was a little kid in Darth Vader. This is the number six, which possibly could be my favorite Super Bowl commercial of all time. It goes all the way back to 2006. See if you remember this. <laughs> I can watch live TV on my new Sprint phone. 
Well, my Sprint phone has TV and downloads music. I can check email. I have that. And crime deterrent. What? Try and take my wallet. Give your... Live TV, wireless music downloads, email, and crime deterrent. I'm filing a grievance, Ben. On the Sprint PowerVision Network. Oh, that's probably my favorite one of all time. And then there is the number one. How many of you remember the Sprint commercial? Very few people remember that commercial. If I ask you what the number one Super Bowl commercial was of all time, you may not know it was Super Bowl commercial. You're definitely going to remember the commercial. Here it is, number one, around 1980 or so. Please, please, give him that. Mr. Green? Mr. Green? Yeah. You, you need any help? Mm-hmm. I, I just want you to know, I think, I think you're the best ever. Yeah, sure. Want my Coke? It's okay, you can have it. No, no. Really, you can have it. Okay. How many of you remember Mean Joe, Coke and a Smile, right? If you're my age, you definitely do. Here's the deal. All of that money, all of those resources, all of that creativity for one single purpose, to get a message out for people to engage or buy some kind of product. And I want to be honest with you, when sometimes when I see all the world will go through to get us to buy a 50-cent bottle of Coke. It makes me just a little ashamed of how unworthily we handle the message of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the world will do all of that to get you to do one simple thing, buy a 50-cent bottle of Coke. How concerned are we about getting the gospel to other places or to other people? Because for us, we have the most important message the world has ever known. For us, we have the only message that determines your eternity. For us, we have the only message that will keep your soul out of hell. For us, we have the only message that will give you meaning and purpose and victory in life. That is the gospel. And we have to get better. And we have to do a whole lot better. As the church, we have to get better. It's our church for you, for me. We have to get better. Because Jesus told us a story in Luke 16 about the gospel that we ought not to be able to get over very easily. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you today. Luke chapter 16. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard this story. It may be the first time, so listen. Beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. 
One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me. He sent Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, Remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you're in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers, family, to warn them. So they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone, Lazarus, from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Thank you. You may, you may be seated. So we find this story about the rich man and Lazarus among a series of parables that Jesus is telling. Parables were just example stories Jesus gave. They weren't true. So we find this story of the rich man and Lazarus in the midst of parables. And so it, it has led some to debate, is this a parable or an actual story? And most conservative theologians, myself included, I'm not theologian, but myself included, believe this is actually a story. And the one separator between this and a parable is Jesus used an actual name, Lazarus. It wasn't a, it wasn't a descriptor like rich man. It was, a, it was an actual name. And if Jesus wanted to say, say a parable, he could have said a rich man and a poor man. But that's not what he did. He said a rich man and a guy I know named Lazarus. It wasn't the Lazarus in the Bible in Luke 11 that was raised from the dead, but it was Lazarus, a man named Lazarus. We don't know the context or the time frame of when this happened. In all probability, it was not even during Jesus' day because he was using a story that they would not have been familiar with to make a point. And so from this story, I believe, about a rich man and Lazarus, hear me, we aren't able to draw theological conclusions point by point. For example, you get to Abraham's bosom and that, or Abraham's side, and that gets a little confusing. But there were some things Jesus was trying to say and some things Jesus was trying to point out in this story that let's not get hung up in what we do know. Let's get hung up on what, on what we don't know. Let's get hung up on what we do know about this story. And I know there are four major themes Jesus was trying to tell us about this story today. Number one, he was trying to tell us this. What you do today determines where you go tomorrow. What you do today determines where you go tomorrow. So here we have two main characters in the story, right? You know them, the rich man and Lazarus. Now, the rich man, the Bible says, was clothed in purple and fine linens. That means nothing to you today, purple and fine linens. But purple was an expensive dye that had to be imported, and it was a color that was reserved for royalty or the incredibly over-the-top wealthy rich people. So that immediately in that day would have put this rich man in a category. This guy was Jeff Bezos rich. He was Bill Gates rich. He was incredibly rich. And the Bible says he, he feasted every day, which was not normal in that day. So here's a man who's incredibly rich. We'll call him the rich man because he died and went to hell and Jesus didn't want to give his real name. He died and went to hell. He was dressed in 
purple. He was, he was almost royalty in his day. He had everything life could offer. He's, he's as high as you can get on the spectrum of this world. And then there's a guy named Lazarus. His name means he who God, whom God helps. He was a beggar. He was covered with sores. His disease of the skin that he had rendered him unemployable and homeless. It's not that he wouldn't work, it's that he couldn't work. No one would employ him. When you had a disease of the skin in that day, no one would employ you. You were required to be outside of the city. You could not even uh, live with your family. So it's not that he wouldn't work, he couldn't work and so, so bad situation. I, I've, it's hard to imagine, but the Bible says the dogs would come, junkyard dogs would come and lick the sores on his body to provide him a little bit of temporary relief from the pain that his body was in. And he sat at the gate where the rich man lived to his mansion and his property and his house. And the Bible says he longed for crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. The refuse. In the South, we'd call it slop. If he could just get what the rich man was feeding to his animals, it would abate his hunger just a little bit. And so here's what we find. We find two men that could not be farther apart on the spectrum of life. One man is up here and has everything has life has offer. One man is down here and absolutely has nothing life has to offer. One man has everything a heart could desire, a hope every morning when he wakes up. And one man is down here, has not even the basic necessities of life and is living in a place where he has absolutely no hope whatsoever. He is so hopeless. He has less hope than a Tennessee fan, amen. if that describes the depth of his hopelessness. Now, before you start drawing theological implications, here's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not saying rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's not, that's not the purpose of the story. You've missed the whole story. Jesus was trying to say there are two kinds of people in life. There are those who put all of their eggs in the basket of this life and then there are those who make decisions based on the next life. The rich man had put all of his eggs into accumulating wealth in this world and had ignored the next world. Lazarus had nothing in this world and had decided to make preparations for the next world. It wasn't rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven and people who have here go to hell and people who don't have here go to heaven. That was not, that was not even the point of the story. The point of the story was some people put all their eggs in the basket of this world. Some people prepare. It could have been reversed. It could have been the rich man had gone to heaven and the, and the poor man had, had gone to hell. But that's it just the way Jesus told the story, the way it happened was a rich man put all all of his eggs in the basket of this world and didn't prepare for tomorrow. And a poor man saying, I have nothing in this world, so let me go ahead and prepare for eternity. 
Jesus was trying to get across the point that the decisions you make today affect where you'll go tomorrow. It was that the rich man decided to live for here and Lazarus decided to take care of there. So can I stop and say, don't miss that point. It's the same point Jesus would want you to get when you read the story that there is only one life and this life is it. That there's only one chance at eternity and this is it. And there's only one opportunity for you to get ready for the next life and this is it. What you do today affects where you go tomorrow. So, preacher, I'll take care of eternity later. There may not be a later for you. You're here today and you need to know that today matters, that today counts, that in this sermon, in this service, you may be deciding right now where you will spend all of eternity. Because what you do today, the decisions you make today, affects where you'll go and where you'll be tomorrow. We have a little thing we do around here. Whenever I put a picture of Tom Brady on the screen, you say boo. Let's try it. Ready? Thank you. Thank you. If you're a Falcons fan. Ushers. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll talk about baseball one of these days but when it starts. But Tom Brady, by the way, no moral example to follow here whatsoever. But his work ethic amazes me. He just won his seventh Super Bowl. He's played in ten Super Bowls. That's twice as many as the guy who's second place on the list, which is John Elway played in five, and he played in ten Super Bowls. Ten. Won seven of them. He's the oldest quarterback to start – a Super Bowl game. He's the oldest quarterback to win a Super Bowl game. How has he done it? We'll do a little dig onto his schedule, and here's what his off-season schedule looks like when football's not going on. He gets up at 5.30, uh, drinks electrolyte water, and, and drinks a sm- makes and eats a smoothie. 7 a.m., he has breakfast with his family, which is eggs and an, av- an avocado. From 8 to 10.30, he hits the gym for strength and conditioning. At 10 a.m., he, he, he some, uh, if he doesn't do this for two, he'll do it for two sometimes. Go to the beach uh, with his family. At 11, he reviews game footage. At noon, he has a salad. From 3 to 5 lunch, he goes to team practice and also even surf and work out and eats a snack every afternoon of hummus and nuts. At 5 to 6, he has a post-workout pliability session where he tries to lengthen and stretch his body. At 6 p.m., dinner with his family, which is always fish, chicken, and certain vegetables, but no nightshade vegetables because he believes they cause inflammation. At 7, he reviews films and strategy with coaches and does charity work. At 7.30 is his family time, including reading to his kids, and he goes to bed at 8.30 every night. Now, the first thing I thought about when I saw this schedule was how remarkably close it is to exactly what I do every day, too. It's weird. It's weird. Minus the avocado, salad, hummus, nuts, fish, and vegetables. Other than that, it's nearly the same, except Doritos, donuts, and stuff like that in, in, in there. Why in the world does a man who's going to be 44 when the season starts go through such a rigorous schedule and be so, so dip, disciplined with this kind of schedule? Because here's what he knows. How, what he does today affects his ability to play tomorrow. 
Do you know when it's too late to get ready for an NFL season? When the NFL season is here. Do you know when it's too late to get ready for the Super Bowl? When the Super Bowl is here. You have to prep for that stuff long before it gets there. And listen to me, if you're here today without Christ, can I tell you when it's too late to, get to, get to take care of eternity? It is too late to take care of eternity when you are in eternity. The decision you make this very minute affects your tomorrow. It affects your eternal tomorrow. And you're listening to this sermon today and you're thinking, hey, this is for somebody else. I'll take care of it next time, tomorrow, next year, when I get older. Hey, listen to me. You'll die without Christ and spend eternity in a Christless, eternity in a Christless hell because you put off for today the decision that needed to be done today. Because what you do today affects where you go tomorrow. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, listen to me, those of us who do know Christ, do you know that the people you need to witness to today, listen to me, may not have a tomorrow. Your decision today affects their eternity. And you're around people every day. Hey, look, just take your phone and go through your contact list in your phone and look, look at all the people in your contacts who need Jesus just look at your social media friends. Look at your friends in real life. Look at the people you go to school with, who you work with. And listen to me, those people need Jesus. And the decisions that you're making today with the gospel may affect where they spend eternity. Because the second thing Jesus wanted us to know out of this passage was number two, we are all going to die. One of the most somber verses in all the Bible is here in Luke 16, 22, where, where Jesus said this, this, one day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died <laughs> and was buried. In one verse, Jesus is introducing to us the concept of death for both men and for all men and women. He was saying the prepared die and the unprepared die. Those with Christ die, those without Christ die. The rich die and the poor die. The healthy die and the, and the unhealthy die. The point is this, they both died. And listen, listen to me, you're hearing my voice today and you know that for you, right? Like you're aware of it with you. You may, you may even have anxiety over it for yourself. But I'm afraid we forget about it when it comes to others. You're going to die one day. But that person in your life who desperately needs the gospel and needs Jesus, that person you work with, that person who's your family, that person who is your friend, that person who is your neighbor, that person you see every week or every day, listen, they are going to die. And God has placed you in their lives for such a time as this for you to be there to make sure they know him as the Lord and Savior of their lives. Did, did a little digging on the lottery this week. I was trying to figure out what are the chances of winning the lottery, right? So I found out the chances of winning Powerball are about 1 in 292 million on any given draw. The chances of winning Mega Millions is about 1 in 302 million on any given draw. Now, be honest, that sounds like uh, um, it's hard to win the lottery. It's what it sounds like to me. I don't know for sure. Uh, if you've won the lottery, let me know. We'll check your tithing off of it just to make sure. But, but it sounds like it's hard to win the lottery, best I can tell. But I thought I need to put it in perspective. So I also looked up 
what are, the, what are the chances of dying in like a weird way, right? So that put the lottery in perspective for me because if it's one in 300 million, so what are the chances of people dying? So I found out some things. So for example, uh, dying in a plane crash, 11 million to one. You're, you're about 30 times more likely to die in a plane crash than you are to win the lottery. That gives you any hope. Um, dying in a car accident though, man, is 161. The most dangerous thing I'm gonna put up here is, is in your car, 161. But get this, this is, this is where it gets a little weirder. Like falling out of bed, one in two million people die falling out of bed, people. Be careful in the morning when you're waking up. Like that, that freaked me out a little bit. Uh, and so I'm kind of getting up a little more gingerly in the morning right now. I'm like, hey, let's be careful. But this one freaked me out even more. Like I'm, I'm generally distraught over this. The chance of you dying of flesh-eating bacteria is only a million to one. That's close. So I just want to tell you, if you have COVID, stay home. If you have flesh-eating bacteria, stay home, man. It, the risk is too great for me right here on this. And I don't really know what flesh-eating bacteria is, but I don't like the sound of it. Do you? Like, I'm like, just stay away if you have flesh-eating bacteria. But you put that in perspective, 1.2 million to one, you're still lightning strike. You're still more likely to die from a flesh-eating bacteria, all right? Uh, but get this, dog mauling. 118,776 people die from a dog mauling. That's concerning to me. And it's just not the big ones either. The little ones are as mean as the big ones are, best I can tell. But you're more afraid of a snake, 50 million to one. Hey, pick them up, people. You're fine. Just don't pet a dog. (laughs) Don't pet dogs. And my wife's favorite, shark attack. She's always afraid of sharks when we go to the ocean. Three, about four million to one. Again, safest place to be is in the water or the jungle. Stay out of your neighborhood. I'm telling you, you're going to die in your neighborhood. You're going to die in your neighborhood. It is safer to swim with sharks than it is to walk a dog in the park. All of it. I mean, the, winning the lottery, you I mean, you're six times, you, you'd be bitten by a snake six times before you win the lottery. Bitten by a snake accidentally six times. Not, not in church, but accidentally six times <laughs> before you win the lottery. The chances of winning the lottery was crazy high, but let me give you, can I give you one more of these statistics right here? One out of one people die. Look to your left, look to your right, you're both going to be dead one day. One out of one people die. That's true for you, right? That's true for me. That's true for everybody you know. Let me ask you this morning, Christian, whose death would be a catastrophic eternal event, event in your life if they were to die because you know they don't know Jesus or you doubt that they know Jesus or you're pretty sure they're very far from God and it may be that you know them and they're in your life because God has placed you there to be the witness. Who do you know that's not ready to meet Jesus? Maybe now's the time to pray for them. Now's the time to get concerned for them because Jesus just made the point. I mean, right here in one verse, rich people die, poor people die, healthy people die, unhealthy people die, prepared people die, unprepared people die. We are all going to die and that's true for you and that's true for everybody. Third thing he told him, though, was number three, wherever you go, you stay. Two places mentioned in here. Let me describe them. Number one is 
uh, torment in Hades. Now, uh, some translations translate that hell. It's the Greek word for Hades, and it's where we get the word hell from. And hell's a great translation for it as well. The place of the unrighteous dead. Now, get this. This hell that's being talked about here in Luke 16 is not the final hell. No, it goes from bad to so much more worse. The final hell we find in the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, which is called the lake of fire. It is a really molten lake. And this hell one day will be dumped into that hell and it would go from bad to worse. And I'm understating that as much as it can be understated. It would go from bad to worse because this hell is described as an eternal place of torments. It's physical, spiritual, and emotional torment for all of eternity. It is filled with fire. It is filled with miseries. And the Bible calls it in Romans, eternal death. You say, preacher, come on, you still think there's fire in hell? I only think there's fire in hell because Jesus said there was fire in hell. As far as I know, he's never told us differently. Hell is a place of eternal fire and eternal torments, eternal miseries. And the Bible says that the rich man died and in hell immediately he lifted up his eyes. And then the, the prepared man died was carried to Abraham's side, which was a Hebrew term used to describe uh, paradise of that day. Now, keep in mind, we would call it heaven today, but it's not the final heaven. It's the holding heaven. The final heaven is in, again, uh, later on in the book of Revelation 21, where it's called the New Jerusalem. And one day, the holding heaven, which is now called paradise, will be emptied out into the final heaven called New Jerusalem, and there we'll spend all eternity. But that doesn't diminish the paradise of this age. It's still a paradise, which is eternity with God. Instead of eternity away from God. And so here's what he was telling us. One is destined for hell. One is destined for heaven. And it cannot be changed. Because look at verse 26. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you. So that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. I know you're thinking, well wait. Why would anybody want to go from heaven to hell? Because they see their loved ones and family and friends, the people they cared about, in a place called hell, and they want to get them out. And God said, sorry, sorry, it's too late. Your fate is sealed when you you go from here, when you leave this world and you go to eternity. Wherever you stay, you go. And of course, the people who are in hell They want to get out of heaven, but he said, you you can't do it. Once you go to hell, you'll stay in hell for all of eternity. Now, we don't don't think that way. Matter of fact, man, television, please don't get any theology from television. I don't care if it has the word angel in the title, heaven in the title. I don't care. Don't get any theology from heaven because we have this theology in heaven. And some religions teach it that, well, if you go somewhere, you'll pay for your sins for a little while and then you'll go to heaven. Well, if that was the case, Jesus died on the cross unnecessarily. He died on the cross so you could be saved and never go to a place called hell. And we don't get to change place. We, 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 we kind of view it like a line of grocery. Do y'all, do y'all do what I do in a grocery store? You know, research says the one thing we don't like about in-person shopping is waiting in line. We're terrible at waiting in line. I'm terrible at waiting in line. But if you do what I do at a grocery store, I mean, you go to Publix and, you, and you, you're about to check out and you kind of survey the landscape before you go somewhere. You do that and you're trying to figure out which line. Is, I used to work at a grocery store. I used to buy groceries and check out. I can tell somebody that's got it and somebody that 
don't got it. You know what I mean? Like there's just some people at the register, they don't got it. And I don't want to be in that line because they just slow and they talk too much and not paying attention. I, I want to go for the lady who's five minutes from getting off work or the guy who's five minutes and she just, just running people through there. Like, that's who I want right there. So if you ever see me in Publix and you see me surveying and you see me go to a line in Publix, whatever you do, bless your life and do not get in the line I'm in because I can't get it right no matter what, no matter what. Whatever line I get in in Publix will be the longest line, no questions asked for no reason. I'm kind of like this little bear. in a store I ever go to. That's me. I wind up there with nobody whatsoever. But that's kind of our idea of eternity, right? Here's what we think when we get eternity. Well, I just switch lines. When, when I get eternity, if I'm in the bad place line, I just go to the good place line. God's trying to let you know, no, that's not the way this works. Here's how it works. When you die, wherever you go, that's where you stay. There's no switching lines. No, a thousand times no. You do not get to switch lines. Wherever your loved ones go, listen to me. The people you care about, they stay for all of eternity. That's why the message is so important. That's why the message is so urgent. That's why your lifestyle matters so much. You are a witness for all of eternity. And there are no second chances. There are no changing lines. And listen, you're here today and you're lost without Jesus. And you're thinking, well, one of these days, me and God will figure it out. Yeah, here's what you and God are going to figure out. That if you die without Christ, you'll spend eternity in hell. That's what you and God have figured out. You won't change places, and where you go, you'll stay. Listen to me, if you know people who you care about far from God, or, or by the way, who are good people, who just don't incorporate God in their lives, listen to me, there is no uh, easier hell to go to. The Hitlers and the good, nice country folk all go to the same hell. It's those who knew Christ and those those who knew Christ and those who didn't know Christ. Those who were prepared, those who were unprepared. Leads me to the fourth thing Jesus told them, and that is you are the best chance they, those without Christ, have. The rich man, realizing that his fate is sealed, immediately does what we ought to be doing. He turns his attention to his family who still have a chance. As a matter of fact, glance down at your Bibles. Look at verse 27 in your Bibles. He said, Father Abraham, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. I got family there to warn them so they don't also come to this place of torment. And he does what Christians ought to be doing. 
He said, here's what I need you to do, uh, God. I need you to get Lazarus, raise him from the dead. They saw him by the gate of my house every day. They know he's died. We talked about his death. We made fun of his death. They know he's died. Bring him back to life and let him knock on the door and be a witness to him. And it'll scare them so much that they'll get saved. And God said, no, nope. They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to them, they won't listen to him. What is, what is Moses and the prophets? Sound like a 60s pop group, right? Moses and the prophets. Who's Moses and the prophets? Here it is. Moses, that's the Bible. That they had in scriptures of that day what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses was the prophets. It's not mean it doesn't mean it was during the time of Moses. It meant they have the word of God. And the Bible is all you need to know how to be saved and how to come go to heaven when you die. But they also have the prophets. Who are the prophets? That's you. He said they have the they have the written word that'll tell them how to be saved. But not only that, they have a spoken testimony of the people who will prophesy. And that was not tell the future. That was proclaim the word of God. People who will prophesy the gospel is what he was trying to say. That's you. That's me. That's not just a sermon. Does it mean a sermon? Of course it does. But it means more than a sermon. It means your witness, your invite, your telling them about Jesus. I know sometimes we look at our lost people, get me, we look at our people far from God in our lives, people who don't know God in our lives, people we care about in our lives, and here's what we think, God, they need a miracle to come to you. They don't. They don't. They just need you. They need you to tell them about Jesus. They need you to, hey, can we just get granular this morning? They need you to repost the Facebook announcement or an Instagram announcement. I, I, told, I preached this sermon obviously twice a day. Had somebody come up to me after the service just at 930 and said, hey, just to affirm that, I reposted uh, the Facebook announcement on my feed last week and, uh, and uh, somebody came up to me at work and said, hey, I, I clicked on that thing. Here's the language. I clicked on that thing that um, you put on Facebook. And she's thinking, what in the world did I put on Facebook? And she said, I, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, your church service. We, we don't go to church, but we watched your pastor last week, and we're going to watch this week. That happens, listen to me, every single Sunday. I promise you right now we're having people saved online because somebody shared a Facebook post or an Instagram post. They need you to invite them to church or put a decal on your car or to do an act of kindness, to give them an invite card to buy them coffee or lunch and tell them how Jesus has changed your life, to invite them to church and you wait on them in the parking lot and sit with them at a service. They need you to take out your phone and send them a text and say, hey, I have you on my mind this morning. I hope it won't hurt your feelings, but do you mind if I ask you, are you 100% sure that you're going to heaven one day? You are the best chance they have. 
Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not 100% sure heaven's your home. Can I tell you something? Because this is, I, I've been where you are. I know what you're talking about. But listen to me. Quit looking for a sign or a feeling. It's not going to come. So many people are thinking, well, it may, God, if you'll just show me a sign, I'll get saved. Can I tell you, you won't. You won't. Because the minute God shows you a sign, you know what you'll say? God, show me one more. Uh, the minute you get a feeling, this is not a feelings-based religion. I love it when I get a feeling, but the feeling doesn't save you. If God sent you a feeling, you're trusting the feeling more than you did the God who sent it. No, it's not about a sign or a feeling. It's about the word of God that says, Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And all they need is somebody to tell them. And if you're here today and you are saved, quit praying for a sign or a feeling for somebody in your life and tell them what Jesus has done in yours. Close your Bibles and I'm, I'm finished. The story, I saw it a few weeks ago and, and I knew I was preaching this sermon. And, and this guy's name is on the motorcycle, so it's Caramel Haki. He's in his 50s. He lives in India. In India, he's known as the ambulance daddy in, in India. In 1998, his mother died. And his mother died because she had an accident that had she gotten to a hospital, she would have been okay. But because they don't have ambulance service in much of India, and by the way, when you read a story like this, you say, thank God for America. They don't, they don't have ambulance service in much of India. She died because she couldn't get to the hospital. It was a few weeks, months later, he was at his job in a tea garden where there were workers in this garden, and one of his workers collapsed with something. And so he immediately didn't have the sidecar then. He immediately took him in through, through the guy over the motorcycle, the way, you'd, you know, back in the Westerns when they threw somebody over a horse, kind of belly first, and rushed him to the hospital and saved his life. And he felt like this was his calling in life. Since 1998, He's carried over 5,500 people to the hospital in his makeshift ambulance service. He's put a side card on it now. He runs it 24 hours a day. His son, he still has a full-time job. His son's helping, has a phone number for you to call. 5,500 people. In 2017, India awarded him the highest honor a civilian can get by the government in India. It was called service above self. I can't pronounce the name, but it meant service above self. Doctors estimate that Hakil has saved the lives of hundreds or maybe even thousands of people. All because he was willing to step up and do something. All because of this. He was the best chance somebody had. Can I tell you this? His plan is not a great plan. Uh, it'd be better for the government to have an ambulance service that could carry people back and forth. They don't have it. He didn't wait to develop the best plan. He just threw a dying guy over his motorcycle and took off to get help. Some of you are here today and you think, well, if I could learn a little bit more about if I knew a little bit more about theology, if I had a little more courage, if, I, if, I, if, I would, if it wasn't for this, it wasn't for that, you're the best chance somebody has 
as you are, you're the best chance somebody has staying out of hell. You say, I don't even know how to say. Listen, if you're saved, just tell them what you did. If you don't know what you did, you may not be saved. Now, I don't say that jokingly. You may not be saved. I was a lost church member. I know what it's like to be a lost church member. You, you may not be saved. Matter of fact, can I tell you this? Sometimes the hardest working people in the church are the ones that get saved because they're using all of that to cover up their lostness. They know something's not right. If you can't tell somebody what you did, you may not have done what you need to do. Put your hope and trust in Jesus. Would you stand with me? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. So two questions. Nobody's looking around but me. Two questions. Are you 100% sure that when you die, you'll go to eternity in paradise, heaven? Or are you 90%, 80%, 50%, 10? Uh, doesn't matter. Anything less than 100 needs to be dealt with today. I'm not asking if you're a church member. I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you work in church. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. You can do all that stuff before you're saved. I'm asking you, are you 100% sure? And so I'm not going to come to where you are. I'm not going to call your name. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. But I want you to be honest with God. This is about your honesty with God. We had a half a dozen hands go up in the 930 service. I'm going to ask you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. How many of you would say, preacher, I am not 100% sure I'm going to heaven when I die. And I want you to pray for me. Nobody's looking but me. Would you slip your hand up and hold it up just for a second? Let me scan the room. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Seven or eight hands right off at a casual glance. Hell's real. Listen to me. I'm not telling you that this morning because I'm trying to scare you. I'm telling you because I love you. And I don't want you to spend eternity, eternity, eternity in hell. We can take care of that today. Today. Listen, I'm going to lead you in a prayer if you'd like to get saved. But hear me well. Hear me well. Saying a prayer and not telling anybody about it is not salvation. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. That, that doesn't mean confessing Jesus is... Um, it means is how you get saved. It does mean if you get saved, you don't have a problem confessing Jesus. And if you don't, then you didn't really get it. If you'd like to be saved, you'd like to know 100% sure, I want you to pray with me right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed. You pray this prayer out loud or in your heart. Pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven when I die. And I know I'm a sinner. But I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin, rose again on the third day. And just now I ask Christ to come into my life to save me, forgive me of my sin, and give me a, an eternal home in heaven. 
And I trust Jesus and Jesus alone to do that. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.